We are encountering silence. Encountering silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be a part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Born to parents who migrated from rural Louisiana, Zenju Earthland Manuel, an ordained Zen Buddhist priest, is the author of The Deepest Peace, Contemplations from a Season of Stillness, Sanctuary, a Meditation on Home, Homelessness, and Belonging, The Way of Tenderness, Awakening Through Race, Sexuality, and Gender, with a foreword by scholar and novelist Charles Johnson, and Tell Me Something About Buddhism, with a foreword by Thich Nhat Hanh. She is contributing author to many books, including Together We Are One, Dharma, Color, and Culture, Voices from Western Buddhist Teachers of Color, and Hidden Lamp, Stories from 25 Centuries of Awakened Women. She holds a master's degree from UCLA and a PhD in transformative learning from California Institute of Integral Studies. You can learn more about her work at the website Zenju. Zenju, thank you so much for coming to Encountering Silence. It's a pleasure to welcome you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. So we always like to start this conversation off to get us going. Uh, Could you describe for us your relationship with silence? It would be lovely to hear that. Silence, I think, has been a major part of my life. And in some ways, um, even um, sometimes of harmful silence. So I was thinking about when I was a child and I, uh, my mother had a preschool. And so uh, we had a lot of uh, great uh, toys in the backyard, like a, a house my father built, a playhouse. And the main thing I enjoyed was the swing. And so when I was on the swing and I loved going out there alone because we'd lived there. So when the kids were gone, I had this whole play yard to myself because my older sister, my younger sister, they weren't that interested in being outside. I was an outdoors barefoot girl. And so (laughs) I was outside swinging and in my swing was the most um, wonderful time of peace and uh, quiet. I'm not dealing with any yelling going on in the house or fighting with my sisters or dealing with anything at school, my desegregated school and those kinds of things. So the swing was the place of silence. And I feel like that's when I started meditating actually, was just a young child, barefoot, a young girl uh, swinging in the backyard. And I I feel that that uh, continued, you know, um, through my life, but then there was, I, I wanted to speak a little bit about the un, uh, the kind of harmful silence that occurred because it occurred not as a child too, around the same time. So I had this peaceful silence. And then um, when I was um, actually sent from an all black school to a, a integrated school when I was um, eight, um, I uh, was uh, kind, I was shocked. So it was kind of like a sober ring. 
So silence can be like a sobering sometimes. And I was shocked by the reality of black and white. And also they were uh, Jewish and I was Christian. And so it was uh, something I hadn't experienced in my all black schools. So um, I, I became very silent then. And I think it was more of a harmful silence that was, I also call a sobering silence, like when you get awakened to something, to something and you're just muted. There are no words, there's just speechlessness. So that's a different kind of, than the kind of peaceful silence in the swing that I had before. I still kept swinging, <laughs> swinging in the swing <laughs> to get through all of it. Yeah. Sensei Zenju, in your book, Sanctuary, you talk a lot about the concept of home and the importance of home. And I'm struck as a nearly 37-year-old woman that that longing just never goes away and that pursuit never goes away. And I wonder if you could speak to the relationship to perhaps a sense of home, at least that I have found in silence from time to time. And how those two things might be connected. The book Sanctuary took me on a journey. I feel like it's still not done. I'd like to take it back and write it again. That's one of the ones I really wish I could write again. And maybe I could do volume two. <laughs> if someone's interested, <laughs> volume two. But I explored this angst and I felt like I wasn't the only one. I felt like there there must be billions of people that feel this way where they're not um, feeling at home, say in the physical sense. Maybe some people like aren't feeling at home right now after the election, their state is red, you know, or something, or their state is blue, whatever way it, discomfort comes. But I um, begin to, in my internal journey, I looked at what were the elements that made me feel at home? You know, of course I started with food and, and laughter and family and friends and um, being able, a place in which I could be who I am and nobody would, um, you know, worry about that. They would just say, yes, yes, and be welcoming and embracing. And even if uh, things didn't go the way folks wanted it to go, I was still embraced. I would still be embraced in that. And to me, that is home. So I learned that, of course, from being home. Home is not perfect when you're home with your family. So, and you're embraced and you're not. You know, there's times you're embraced and times you're not. The other element of home for me was, I would call that first phase, maybe a joyous phase. There's also a phase of peace. And that peace comes from when I feel connected to anything or something. So right now I, I just moved from um, California and I've been there all my life, like all my life. I never went anywhere because why to me, California was the greatest state <laughs> in the United States. Why would you move from California? And there's, you can just go up and down the state to various geographies and you, there's no reason to leave California for me. So anyway, so I'm kind of a California snob. And when I had to leave because of the, I had been needing to leave, I needed drier climate. And so I, I, I chose um, New Mexico. I had been visiting New Mexico for years, 
off and on for ceremony. And I chose it. And when I got here, I felt completely at home. And that's that connection, um, that the peace of being with the earth. I feel the earth here in New Mexico. I feel, you know, the trees. I feel uh, the people. It's a very southern state. I tell people that they don't know it's southern because you have to have been raised by Southern parents like me or have lived in the South to see the Southern miss of New Mexico. So everyone talks to you, you know, when you go get coffee, you might end up in this conversation. You don't just get the latte and off you go. You know, you, you talk and, you know, you might even find out about their children or, you know, their partners and, or what happened in the neighborhood or, you know, you just, there's a constant um, connection that way. And it's cross-cultural, even though there's still everything going on, you know, and that's uh, the Southern way. I saw that with my parents, you know, they were very um, open to the same white people that would probably discriminate against them. They were, you know, tipping their hats and saying hello and good morning and, and making that connection. And that's the way it is in, in Mexico. So I needed that kind of feeling of connection. And when I don't feel that, then I, I don't feel home. So that, that peace, when I say peace, there's the joyous, then there's the peace um, part. And that's connecting to the earth and connecting to people who are the earth, right? It's still earth. And um, I wondered why New Mexico also felt this way, different than uh, California. And I have this belief that it's because it is surrounded by reservations and pueblos and people who are constantly in ceremony, constantly in ceremony. I can feel that in the earth. I can feel that energy, you know, that, that way of, of connecting to the earth through them. I don't have to go to the ceremony. I just know it's going on. And uh, I feel it and I feel like I can talk about ceremonies and rituals here. I can pray, I can um, uh, drum, I'm a drummer. So I can do all kinds of things here and feel very much uh, uh, connected to the land and to, to my spirit. And, the, and then that's, that's home. At first I thought home was a lot about the house you live in, you know, like many of us believe in in the neighborhood. So sometimes the house didn't fit or the neighborhood didn't either. And I didn't realize how much it didn't fit until I came here. And the first place I moved, I moved onto this ranch and they threw this barbecue for me. And they said, are you enjoying this? I said, this has never happened in my entire life. <laughs> you know, to be invited in, <laughs> like a celebration of me in your neighborhood. In Europe, it, it was like they looked, they didn't understand how great it was because I was very quiet and full and there was a lot of grief and joy and I couldn't articulate it. So they thought I was upset or something, but I was just like, this, I was shocked. So I think building house is so temporary and um, whether you live in that house for 50 years, it's still temporary it will move, it, you will move and somebody else will move in or stay or whatever. But the house itself, I stopped putting all of that on the house. You know, my home is the house. I, I love the way that you take that concept in the book and in the words you're sharing today beyond 
relational and almost I, I'm getting this visual of almost like roots going through our feet into the ground and this deep connection to earth yes. is just really strong and touching. And, and while it is relational, right, relational with the earth and relational with our fellow human, seeing the depth of that through that visual is really helpful for me. And in the book, I'm struck when you write about systemic oppression in that book, Sanctuary, you say unworthiness, invisibility, loss of intimacy, isolation, neglected intuition, lack of love, intense fear, overwhelming distrust, and loss of voice. And you write that these are all life-threatening symptoms of the disease of systemic oppression. And I'm just struck that can we ever really have a sense of home fully relationally in a world bombarded with these oppressions? I mean, it, we have to go to the ground, right? We have to go to the earth in order to, to get that sense. That's right. And so those are my life-threatening symptoms. Maybe someone else has another, another group of people have another list. I would love to see it. What threatens your being and living fully? And after experiencing, uh, I guess, oppression so young and thinking of how ridiculous it was <laughs> to me, you know, as a kid, it's like, wow, I didn't do this to myself. You know, I didn't. Although if I were choosing, I, I might choose this color. I probably would choose this because I like it. But anyway, <laughs> um, I never not didn't like my the actual color of my skin. Never was an issue for me. I think this sense of, of being threatened or challenged by um, what the world imposes upon our lives and challenge. I learned, I had to learn this through walking the path of Dharma, was that these, in fact, they were the things, the relative things of life. But I, but I had to use these things. Like there was, racism wasn't going to end necessarily in my lifetime. I, I just knew this. And then at the same time, I knew that okay, should I suffer this? Which I did. I said, okay, this is never going to end. You know, this is a horrible life. What has happened here? Or what I learned um, walking the path of the Dharma is to use these challenges, this situation, however deep, however expansive, as material, as fodder. Like, like when you do think of your life as earth and as land, to use these different things that punch holes in your land to, to, to plant some seeds in which you can um, fully be and grow if you want to grow from there as well. And so that's what I learned to do. And um, that harmful silence I was talking about, I learned um, through the practice of Dharma to how to come through that because of the things in my mind, you know, that, uh, and my experience said I needed to just go in a corner and be quiet <laughs> because you are not wanted, you're not welcome, you know, we're not interested in you. And so um, that's what I did. And then in the practice, I began to see that that was um, not the reality. And I think the rituals were very uh, helpful for me and ceremonies very helpful. Um, because in the midst of everything, you can always have that 
uh, you could always have whatever your ritual is. You could always have that ritual or that ceremony to sustain you and hold you through life's uh, turmoil. So everyone has turmoil and all of it's uh, a lot of it's systematic, you know, whether it's oppression or not, it's still um, caught up in a system we create as human beings and that we created even when we were probably early human beings, species and dealing with what we created, you know, so we're always dealing with what we created, right? I think I, I wrote in one of my poems and in, in one of my, one of uh, somebody came out of the audience and repeated the line to me in the way she repeated it. It sounded like she wrote it. It was so it was so deep the way she said it. And it, I wrote that screaming is insane when we're dying from our own inventions. When dying from our own inventions, and I think that I realize oppression's invented. All of it's invented, and so um, what in do I want to uh, create for my life despite all of these things? And I, I do, I have, have uh, students or different people who come to me and they would love for me to end the oppression for them. That's what, I'm a Zen priest. So when, we're when I turn anyone back, I'm doing what I did, which was to turn, turn in and turn back to the truth of our being, the nature of life and um, how the distortion, everything we're experiencing challenges are the distortions that we come up against, the distortions of what we, of life, what the things we've been taught and the things that are imposed upon us through different family, communities, uh, spiritual paths, organizations, religious organizations, anything that may impose and teach you a particular way of life is there and, and it's challenged and the way the world is. Of course, this year we've been challenged to death, right? You know, we just definitely been just, you know, can I say kicked in the ass, you know, <laughs> several times, you know? <laughs> so uh, I think, I think that's the first on the podcast and I love it. Okay. It's the truth. It's right. the truth. I just, I just have to say it. <laughs> sorry, teacher. My teacher hates me to like, yeah, sorry. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in this 30 seconds of silence. But very, true. very Zen of you to use a uh, curse to slap us awake. <laughs> you know, it's to keep us from going over the edge. You know, it's, you know, it's, uh, you know cursing is such a great visceral expression to me <laughs> of you know, the ways in which we, when we're on that edge of, of what feels to be um, horrific. Or, or evil or whatever we want to call it. You know, people have all kinds of names for it. And so, um, yeah, I feel 
this year we're really been pushed to every year we're going to be every day we're going to be every moment we're going to be pushed to that human potential that is is just waiting there all the time we don't know what that potential is and there's no end to that potential yeah but so that's why we're continually pushed in uh, can i say it again kicked in the ass <laughs> <laughs> i have several comments i'd love to talk to you about about the land and about the Southern experience, you know, as somebody who lives in Georgia and who has, you know, and even though I have the privileges of being male and white, I still have profound ambivalence about the terrible history mm-hmm. of the land in which I live. And at the same time, profound love for this land too. So, you know, mm-hmm. so it's, it's a very rich and nuanced experience. And I think this question of, of finding those roots, finding that relationship with the land even in situations that may be traumatic or that maybe call of us an activist response, a struggle for justice, a struggle to end oppression or to dismantle racism, et cetera, so dismantle homophobia, et cetera. I think, you know, that, that, that finding this, finding that the land can actually support us in that work we're called to do. This is, you know, something that I think would be a wonderful uh, conversation to explore. So we could do that. The other question that I have, I'll, I'll give you a choice here. Okay. <laughs> is to cycle back to to ritual. You've mentioned you've mentioned ritual on several occasions, and so as somebody who 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 is not a follower or, or I mean, I'm I'm interested in the Dharma, but you know, I've never taken an initiation, so I don't claim it as my own path. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about, and maybe you're not even speaking about Buddhist ritual. I don't know, you know, but share a little bit about the rituals that for you give you life and give you that connection to the land and and that that uh, function, if I can make a pun, function as a refuge for you? I think both of those questions can be, I think they're interconnected. Because when you say the land where you live or, or Georgia, things are there, you know, in that land. And, um, and then in my world, things are there in all of our worlds, right? Things are there, <laughs> all kinds of um, challenges and difficulties, suffering and turmoil. And so there are things everyone does, and we can call those like everyday rituals, right? Some people oh, drink coffee every morning. Uh, some people run every morning, walk every morning. Some people eat ice cream every night. Some people, you know, some people drink, some people, whatever. There's something that you do. It's like almost a ritual um, to sustain yourself in the craziness. And I think people got really aware of what their ritual was uh, while we were uh, stuck in our caves, you know, stay at home. You know, when COVID came about, I think we got really clear of the rituals and they got intensified. You know, how many times you did something, how many movies you watched a day, how many books you, whatever your thing is, it could be anything. Some people say, well, reading a book is so much better than eating potato chips and ice cream all day. But, you know, it's still a ritual that you do. Now, what does the ritual do for you? So that's the difference of a ritual and ceremony on a path particular path you know if that ritual and ceremony is intentional and it's on a path then it has the potential to transform the suffering not just attend to the symptoms of it okay I'm, I'm 
I'm my mind's going crazy. I think I'll, you know, have a drink. You know, that's it. You know, okay, now I'm having ten drinks because it's COVID. You know, whatever. You know, so these kinds of things come up, but it does these those rituals don't have a path, and they don't have the potential of transformation. So. Ritual and ceremony to me, which even before Zen I experienced, I, I think there's ri- plenty of ritual in church when I first went to the Black church I was raised in. Um, so I was raised in ritual to drink grape juice as symbolic of uh, Christ's blood and to eat leavened bread as his body. So I was already indoctrinated, you know, in that way. And I feel that that's what made um, Christianity palpable to a lot of Black people and slaves because it did have elements of ritual, especially baptism. I think baptism, I always pick baptism as the very thing that brought uh, Black people into Christianity because it's a very old, old ancient um, practice to be buried in, in water and to, and to come out of that water transformed. So there's, a, there's that element, right, again, of being transformed, Jesus Christ was transformed, right? And that's uh, resurrected and transformed. And so those those things are in all paths that have rituals and ceremonies. Even when I practice any African ceremonies, I went to a bimbe, which is an African's, you know, ritual dance with drumming, you know, which I started going to at the age of 16 and 17, I started attending uh, African rituals. And um, in there, they, it was to transform your life, to bring the suffering up, like happens in church, there's wailing or something, or even in, a, in meditation, the suffering arises, and then we dance, or then we offer incense, or then we bow, or then we something, right? And that's the ritual, that's the ceremony. And in, in the midst, that's what I was telling, what I love so much about uh, Zen, and all rituals, really all rituals and ceremonies is the ability to just offer incense in the midst of crazy oppression around me, to just offer that, to just bow um, as a way of, uh, of, of seeing and being in it and um, informing how I will act later, how it, w- it does inform my actions, you know, it, because I, I I have an opportunity to feel something different in the moment. If you go to ritual and ceremony without an intention and, and without some kind of a path or, or uh, I think a notion of, of liberation or freedom or transformation, then you end up uh, reifying your suffering. So a lot of people even come to meditation, I'm gonna meditate. And they start doing this thing. They don't know what they're doing. You know, they have no idea what meditation is. And they just sit there and stew in their suffering. And then they get up and they still are suffering more than they were when they sat down. Because there was really nothing there to transform the seed of suffering. Like that's what my Hong Kong is transforming, the seed of suffering. And so um, we have to be careful when we do rituals and ceremonies. Um, in our land, in our home, what are we invoking by what we do? What did Georgia invoke to flip it from, from red to blue? 
you know, not just the actions. There was a, there was an invocation. Something was invoked for that to flip. It was, and yay for all the hard work. Yes, people did carry that invocation into action. There's no doubt about it. But what really was what was what was the fire, the fodder, what, you know, all that stuff that was under it. There was fire to make it happen, to make the invocation be thought of and then acted upon. And so that's that's how I see um, even, you know, on our own lands, physical land, how we can take that into invocation, ritual, and ceremony without it being religious, even without it being spiritual. Mm necessarily whatever those words mean to you right but just being careful and cautious about not reifying you know the um, the suffering yeah by not having any kind of attention to transform or, or any intention toward freedom or liberation what I love about that answer, and I, I just love our guests on this show because <laughs> because the, the spirit just seems to move in this lovely way that none of us could script. And I, I've heard, listening to your answers deeply, this thread that I hear for, from the very first answer about silence, you told us about there was this kind of silence of peacefulness and home, and then there was this other silence that disturbed you and caused the anxiety and then you went on and discussed this with Cassidy a little further as she talked about sanctuary. And now this question with Carl, and you talk about ritual and embodiment. And I hear this thread of you doing both of those silences, the finding of the home and the anxiety that keeps you walking the path and looking for that flame, that intention, that body ritual all the way out. And so I'm wondering if you could trace out a little bit for us that journey that you said, you've told us you started off Christian and now you're a Zen priest. And you talked about African tribal drumming. And I I know your website, I know your work. You have a whole bunch of shamanistic and other aspects of your path. How Could we weave in a little bit of that home of your journey in each of these places, the ritual? Could we talk about how you felt pulled and how those all interact with you now? I'm sure you still carry pieces of all of that with you now. I'd love yeah. to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. I remember um, talking about it one time with a friend. I wrote about it and she said, oh no, you can't let people know you, you've done all of that. That's crazy. You, you, you're, just, you're just every place. You're all over the place. It doesn't sound like you're sane. And so I said, oh, Hmm. You know, because it didn't think it didn't feel that way to me. And so it made me explore what was really, really happening. And I think even from sitting in church and hearing about Christ and uh, hearing about God and believing and not believing and just the whole ride. And I think that the thread of it all is my question is what are we we doing here and and where where are we and where are we going and nobody knows nobody that is so profound to me i think i was so interested i mean i had my little bible 
under my arm. I wasn't evangelicalistic. You know, I wouldn't tell anybody about Jesus Christ. None of these practices I never tell anybody about. I am not that kind of person at all. I'm just uh, just exploring. I had my little Bible and I would, they would say things and I would try to find it and read about it. And I'm like, no, I'm like nine, 10, 11, you know, I'm young. I'm trying to figure it out because I'm being hated in this country. You know, I'm not gonna survive under this. <laughs> and also um, at the same time, I'm struggling at home. And also I experienced death early because my, I had a, a friend who died um, when I was six. You know, we were, she was six, I was six years old. And that was shocking to me because I didn't know children died. You know, and I was very upset about it. I mean, not about this to death. Um, and I've told this story many times is that I was mad at my mother for giving me birth because now I have to die. I was really pissed and I still get mad about that sometimes. You know, it's like, whoa. So I think the thread is just this curiosity, not about the religions and not about the past or the temples. The, it's the path and there's all these temples along the path and I just, duck into one and check it out, but not for to see what, oh, let me see what Buddha is about. I, I could care less about Buddha or Buddhism. I could really, it's not the thing itself or the naming of the thing or becoming the thing, becoming Christian or becoming a, a Buddhist or becoming a priest and becoming, becoming, it's none of those things. It's I'm, I'm like going and picking up stones of the earth and, and looking at them and seeing, and this is what's of the earth that I can touch are these paths. So this is why, you know, I find myself, uh, I think going into these spaces like a, a, a discoverer seeking uh, medicine and healing, not only for myself, but for all of those I see that are ill with the same illnesses that I may and that, that to, to share it, not to share it as a teacher or a healer, or now I'm a medicine person or a shaman, not that. But to, even as a teacher, even as a Dharma teacher, I'm not saying, let me share it and tell you all about the Dharma. That is not what I'm interested in doing at all. I'm interested in if, if I see you suffering and there's something that I can share from my life, which is the medicine, and it helps you and you take it in and it's, even if it's strong and bitter medicine, you can take it in and you can digest it and see how it, it, it fits in your life as in, does it turn the wheels in the way it turned my life? So I only will give you something that turned my life. If I don't know about it, I won't give it to you. I cannot teach you everything about Buddhism. There's no way, and I'm not interested. And I rarely, rarely teach classes that are just about all the fossils. I can bring the fossicles in, the sutras and the teachings and all that in. I can bring the Bible in as, as just a, an example of ancient beings' experiences and how they taught. Because we're to come up with our own wisdom, right, through those teachings. If we're just spouting out Jesus Christ, what Jesus said and what Buddha said, and then we're not that, that I'm not interested in that. And I don't think most people are. So... Buddha said that, and what does it mean to you? And Jesus Christ said that, and what does it mean to you now in 2020? What does all that mean to you? I, I don't want to hear it unless you've integrated with that. You 
I'm interested in your experience of, of that, of the teaching, not of Jesus and not of Buddha and not of Allah. I want all of these to be uh, places in which I did, the Muslim door got shut. I always, I did go that way, but it got shut really quick for me. It, 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 I really, there were some teachings there. I still will read those teachings, but the actual, um, I went into the black Muslim community for just a minute. I mean, it was a minute I went in and I, I remember backing out really fast, like one of those slide shuffles, I'm not gonna be here for this. And um, it was something there that just didn't feel like I could be home. I could feel as myself there as, as a free person, a free woman. So I just did not do it, um, but I, I did feel myself there too. So I think that what is shamanic is just being in the cave of the earth, this cave of the earth and seeing into it. And all of the practices are about seeing. All of them are about seeing. They're, on, they're not sitting practices. I just, I just wrote that. We are not sitting. We are not praying. We are seeing. Eventually, if you're just praying and you're just sitting and not seeing, then it's probably pretty boring, I think. Probably be <laughs> pretty boring practice. I, I knew meditation get real boring, boring if you, <laughs> you know, it's just, you don't see nothing. You don't know what you're doing there. <laughs> I always tell people, I say, well, then, you know, you don't have to do this. <laughs> yep. You know, yep. you really don't have to do this. It's just really go out and enjoy your life. This is the end of a multiple part interview. Part two will continue in our next episode. We are encountering silence. I'm Kevin Johnson. To learn more about me, please visit kevinmichaeljohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. Find out about my work at carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. My website is cassidyhall.com. Please visit the podcast's website at encounteringsilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on this podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters. Our circle of supporters help tremendously in sharing our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world. Thank you.